So we continue this week in our series on idolatry. We've been talking week after week this semester about uh, this fundamental issue of the human heart, this tendency that we all have to attach ourselves to things, to images, to desires, to hopes. We trust in them. They become ultimate for us. They control us. This is idolatry. Idolatry is not just statues that are bowed down to. It's, it's anything that becomes too important for you. Anything that becomes ultimate in your life. That is, that takes the place of greatest affection that belongs to the Lord alone. And whenever we set our deepest affections and trust on created things, it destroys us because they're empty. That's what Jeremiah talks about here. So by way of introduction, I wanted to read a story this morning that I think vividly portrays the emptiness and the futility of idols. So let me read this short little story for us here. Before he walked into the windowless building, he looked both ways, as if he were about to cross a dangerous intersection. His heart raced with both fear and excitement. He feared that he might be caught, or that he might not. He felt the excitement of being aroused and of being at risk. Even though this section of town was one his parishioners rarely visited, he wondered if someone he knew might just happen by on this day. But seeing no familiar face, he walked cautiously through the door marked adults only. During the next hour, he eagerly thumbed through magazines and stared at videos, looking up occasionally to reassure himself of his anonymity. In that time, he forgot about all that was important to him the rich evening of prayer he had enjoyed with good friends the night before, his wife pregnant with their second child, his bright-eyed two-year-old daughter, the growing church he pastored, the God whom he had known since his conversion in high school. He had to put all of these out of his mind because their presence would have spoiled his momentary indulgence. After a while, he left as cautiously as he had entered, feeling both bored and aroused at the same time and deeply unsatisfied. And during the long drive home, the initial fear and excitement of his adventure gave way to a familiar feeling of defeat. I think this is a vivid picture of how idols, these things in our life that come to demand our affections, promise so much, but deliver on so little. What we're going to see from Isaiah's message here is how empty idols are, how they cannot come through, how futile it is to seek life and satisfaction and fulfillment in these created things. Now this story might do some different things in your heart. For some of us, our idolatry might look something like this. It might be something far more visible, something far more noticeable that tends to dominate our life. For others of us, it might be something far more subtle like living for the approval of others, living for performance, being a perfect mom or a perfect businessman, achieving success, our stuff, our toys, the list is limitless of the kind of things that we can attach our hearts to and seek significance in. Our problem is that idols seem far more compelling to us than intimacy with the living God. But what we're going to see in Isaiah... What we're going to see is that intimacy with Christ is infinitely more satisfying 
than anything this world has to offer, than any of the empty idols that we tend to pursue. So let's look at our passage together. It's helpful as we come and we see this disturbing message of Jeremiah. Jeremiah reads a lot like the song that we heard for the offertory, wedding dress that speaks of, that speaks of adultery, that speaks of whoredom. And this is exactly the kind of language that we run into here, and it's helpful to understand what the situation was in the days of Jeremiah to understand why this message is so strong. You see, Israel in Jeremiah's day was in really bad shape. They were cold, they were indifferent, their hearts were far from the Lord. But on the outside, they had a real facade of religiousness. They continued to go to church, they continued to use all the religious jargon in their talk. They might have looked religious on the outside, but on the inside their hearts were far from the Lord. In fact, their, their affections were attached to things like their affluence. Israel had found themselves in a good land. They had been blessed by God, and their hearts had become attached to those things. They were seeking comfort and security in the things that they had rather than in the Lord. They were neglecting the poor. They were totally disregarding the poor. In fact, they were getting rich on the backs of the poor. That's one of his strongest accusations against his people in the prophets. And finally, and worst of all, they were engaged in idolatry. Flagrant idolatry. You see, they had adopted the gods of the nations around them. They were bowing down and worshiping Baal and other gods. In fact, it was so bad that Jeremiah says in chapter 11... You have more gods than you have towns, O Judah. You have more pagan shrines than you have streets. They were in bad shape. But they were going along like they were okay. The prophets would announce this, they would say this, and God's people would say, Whoa, hang on. We're the elect. What are you talking about? We got the temple. We're the elect. We have His love. Nothing to worry about. Calm down, Isaiah. Calm down, Jeremiah. And that's why his words are so strong. Whenever we come to this passage, you know where we find ourselves? We find ourselves in divorce court. We find ourselves in this scene where we see, much like you might see on daytime TV, watching divorce court, very wholesome programming, we see this scene where two people who were once so in love are now so estranged. And in this situation, on one side of the court, we find the Lord, the husband who had been faithful to his bride, who had lavished his love and affection and provision upon her. And on the other side, we see Israel, who had turned away from the Lord, who in spite of all his love and kindness, had run after other lovers. It wasn't an adultery just once. It was adultery over and over and over. So why is it like divorce court? Why does... God used the imagery of marriage to describe His relationship with His people over and over and over. Why does Jeremiah speak of the problem in their relationship as if it's adultery? Well, it's because of this. The relationship that God enters into, enters into with His people is a covenant. God never moves into and out of relationship with people. He never comes and offers intimacy and then pulls away. Whenever God offers Himself in relationship, it's always in the confines of a covenant. 
He gives Himself only whenever He binds Himself to that person. And whenever He enters into said covenant with a person, He also requires their loyalty to Him, just like a marriage. In fact, that's what marriage is supposed to picture. It's supposed to be a picture of God's relationship with His people. That it's a forever kind of relationship that requires loyalty. You know how it goes whenever two people get married. They stand up in front of a bunch of people and they take vows in covenant. And they say things like this, I take you forsaking all others. What are they saying? You now have the primary allegiance in my life. I will now give you my loyalty above all other relationships. That's the essence of the marriage relationship, and it's the essence of our covenant with God. And that's why it's such an issue whenever we run after these other things, whenever we offer our affections and our trust to created things rather than the Creator. That's why it's such a problem. And so we find ourselves in divorce court where God, the faithful spouse who has been cheated on over and over again, is bringing charges against His bride. He says this in the beginning, I remember the devotion of your youth. This is verse 2. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of His harvest. He's making his case in court and he says, he turns and he looks to his bride and he says, I remember those days. I remember those days of young love whenever our relationship, it was so rich. Your love for me was so pure. You were willing to go anywhere. You were willing to to endure anything so long as you could be with me. I remember that love. But the fondness of his memories turns to crushing pain as he recounts what's become of his people. He says this, verse 5, What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. It's as if he is saying, what did I do? What did I withhold from you that you, caught, that you decided to run off to other lovers over and over and over? Did I withhold something? Was I unkind to you in some way? Did I withhold any of my love? What did I do that caused you to exchange me for other lovers? And he continues... Verse 6, they, didn't, they did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. God says, you, you forgot my grace to you. After you had strayed so far from me, from me, no one asked, hang on, where's the Lord? What have we done? We've left the Lord. Nobody was alarmed by where their hearts had gone. And it's because they had forgotten His grace. They had come to think that, that all of their blessings, all of their affluence, the fact that they lived in this wonderful land was because of their own goodness, because of something they had done. But God says, you forgot that I rescued you. You were in slavery, in bondage in Egypt. And I rescued you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And I brought you to myself. 
And at Sinai, I married you. You forgot these things. I brought you into this wonderful land and I blessed you with all of these things. And you defiled it by turning away from me. So that's his accusation. But then he moves into his charge. Verse 8, The priests did not ask, Where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. It had become so bad that the priests didn't even know God. says the priests, they didn't know who He was. They didn't know anything about Him. How horrendous! These were the people that were supposed to be leading God's people to know the Lord. They were supposed to be the ones that were interceding for God's people, that would come in between a sinful people and a holy God and make intercession with the blood of a sacrifice. They didn't even know Him. Even worse than that, the leaders. It says the leaders there, actually it's shepherds, which refers to the kings. The house of David. The house of David, those who were supposed to bring God's rule to God's people, to lead them in keeping covenant, well, they rebelled themselves. And finally, the prophets, the ones who were to, to speak for God, to say to God's people what God wanted them to hear, well, they were, they were speaking for Baal. They were telling them what Baal wanted to hear, what Baal wanted them to do. The foreign God. It had become so bad that there they sit in divorce court and God brings charges against His people. He says this, verse 10, Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if anything like this has ever been done. His sarcasm here... Kittim is, is over in Cyprus. It's about as, as far west as you can go from Israel. And then Kedar is about as far east as you can go. He's saying, go all over the place and search. Have you ever seen anything like this? Has anybody ever changed gods? Have they ever gotten rid of their gods? No, but that's exactly what my people have done. <clears throat> he says... My people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror. This is the essence. This is what it boils down to. God's people had exchanged their glory. That is, their privileged relationship with the living God. A covenant marriage relationship with Him. They had exchanged their glory and all of His grace and all of his privileges for worthless idols. It was a terrible trade. It was a bad exchange. It was the worst that you could possibly imagine. You see, the essence of idolatry, the essence of idolatry is that it's an offense against God and His love and His grace because it's a rejecting of Him. It's a saying, yes, I see all of your grace and all of your kindness, but I think I prefer this. God is sitting in divorce court and He says, you, you left me for that? For that? It's empty. It's worthless. Why would you do this? This is a terrible, appalling thing. And then He moves into a metaphor. The storm comes at this point. 
turn to the side here. He moves to a metaphor here and he says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is his image, his metaphor, a description of the essence of idolatry. He says, this is what it's like whenever you exchange me for worthless idols. It's like being a really, really thirsty person. And God says, I know you're all thirsty. You were made to be thirsty. You were made to be a people who had deep, deep longings. Longings that only I can satisfy. But it's like being a desperately thirsty person and seeing a well, a spring of living water, clean, refreshing water, and saying, no thanks, not interested. I think I'll go over here and dig my own cistern. Now, what's a cistern? Well, a cistern in this day was quite common. It was, uh, in this day, water was hard to come by, so any you got, you had to really hang on to. So what they would do in this day is they would dig out a hole in the ground. It would have a real narrow opening, and it would open up. And they would coat it in plaster in there, and they would catch the runoff from a roof. They would catch rainwater in here from a roof or from the ground. But here's the thing about cisterns. They didn't really work so good. The water was stale. It, it tasted like roof and dirt, and it would stagnate, and it would get worms. And, and you know, the, the plaster didn't work so good. It was so laborious to keep up. There were constantly earthquakes in that area and the, the plaster would crack and it would leak. All your water's gone. So the idea is, is that ultimately they fail. They don't come through. They don't work. They don't satisfy. And that's his message. He says, do you see how foolish and irrational what you've done is? You're running after these things that are broken cisterns. They're empty. They cannot deliver They cannot protect you. They cannot satisfy your soul. They cannot deliver the things that you're trusting in them for. But I am the spring of living water. I'm the source of life. Why would you pass me up for this? Do you realize that your idols cannot satisfy you? Do you realize that they cannot deliver on the promises they make? You know, like trusting in the approval of others, our stuff, the security that our money brings, needing the approval of others, you know, performance, constantly striving to be that perfect mother, that, that perfect, you know, in your job, attaining success, all of those things that we chase and run after and seek after for satisfaction in life, do you realize that they're like broken cisterns? that they they can't deliver, they can't satisfy. And the most tragic thing about giving yourself to them and, and running after them is that you're passing up life with intimacy with God. Do you believe knowing God and experiencing intimacy with Him is more satisfying than all the empty things that you're running after? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life? As the psalmist says in Psalm 63, like better than life. So that means like if you have the love of the Lord, you can lose everything. You can lose all of your money. 
You can lose any of those precious loved ones in your life. You can lose your job. You can lose your very own life. You can lose your health. You can lose it all, and you are still the infinite gainer. That's what it means, that the steadfast love of the Lord is better than anything this life can offer. If you're anything like me, it's kind of like a yes and no. I do believe that, but it's so fleeting. Those times whenever I really believe the steadfast love of the Lord is better than anything I have. And so I'll trade everything to have it. So they're fleeting. So how do we respond to this? We've spent a lot of time this semester identifying our idols. Talked a lot about it. So if you're not seeing them by now, you've either been sleeping a whole lot or you're just not very self-aware at all because we all have them. We've talked about it over and over and over. So I think the question at this point is, how do we respond? How do we respond to this? Well, how Jeremiah tells us to respond, he repeats it over and over and over in his book. He says over and over and over, return, 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 return to the Lord. That's another word, way of saying repentance. Repentance is a coming home to the Lord. If, if idolatry is a leaving, is a departing from the Lord, is a running after other things, repentance is simply coming home. And it revolves a turning. It involves a turning, a, a turning of the mind, a changing of perspective. It, it involves a changing of the heart and what you delight in, and it, it involves a, a change of direction in your life. But it's like a, a coming back to experience God's grace and love. So I think understanding the nature of repentance is so important for us, but it's so difficult at the same time. Because I think we have more images of false repentance than we do of true repentance. I think that the natural connotations we have whenever we hear the word repent are very negative. And we think it, it involves things like feeling really, really sorry about what you've done. Like beating yourself up enough until God says, okay, alright, fine, I'll forgive you. You know, showing Him how much you hate your sin, how much you hate yourself, it's like beating yourself up. Which is just another way of trying to pay for your own sin. That's not repentance, it's called penance. Right? You know, it's like putting soap in your mouth if you said a naughty word. It's like, it cannot pay for your sins. But this is what we tend to think of, that repentance is bitter. It involves guilt and shame and it's painful. And it feels like we're going backwards. Because so often we think the way, the, the way that you are blessed by God, the way that you have His favor is by being good. And so if you've got to repent, it means you failed at that, so you're going backwards. This is false repentance. You know what I think about? Whenever I hear the word repentance, it's hard to not have this image burned in my mind. Whenever I was a student at UGA, and whenever I went to college, I was not walking with the Lord, and there was this guy on, on campus, right? This kind of central place on campus. And he would get up on this box, soapbox. He'd stand up on it, and he had this sign draped over him. And the sign would say in big, red, scary letters that almost looked like a flame, it would say, Repent, right? And then underneath it, it would quote Jesus saying, repent. You know, of course, it left out exactly what Jesus said next is, believe the gospel. You know, no need for that. Just repent, okay? And so he's yelling. 
His face is blood red and he's yelling at everybody that comes by, you're going to hell. Repent, repent, repent. I think he was visiting from Knoxville. <laughs> Sorry. Revealing my idols. Sorry, Matt. Matt, stirred up back here. So that's the connotation we have that repentance is a negative. It's a bitter thing. It means I'm outside of His favor. That I'm digressing. But the reality is is that true repentance, it's progressing. True repentance is rooted in a deep faith, a deep confidence in the cross. True repentance is a repentance that returns home to the Lord convinced of His pardon, convinced of the unsearchable riches of the gospel. True repentance is rooted in this confidence that my only righteousness is in Christ. And because of what Christ has done on the cross, He promises to always receive me. In fact, He has bound Himself to receive me. And so repentance is filled with joy. It's not filled with regret. It's filled with a hunger for righteousness, a hunger to change. It's coming back to experience the pardon and the free grace of our God. Repentance is a beautiful thing. One song that's really helped me to really understand and appropriate the beauty of repentance is a song uh, called Prodigal Me by Shane Bernard. If you ever heard that song. And it's a song that is a play on the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the son that takes his father's wealth and runs off and squanders it in wild living in the far country. And so the song uh, moves around from the perspective of the son who finds himself in the far country, of the father who's longing for his son to return, and of his servants that are out searching for the son. And it moves from the different perspectives of the people in there to show you what they're thinking, to show you where their hearts are. And it begins with the son in the far country. And he says, what have I done to get me here? Unraveled and undone, I need my father. What will they think? What will they think as I come stumbling home? I followed my feet to nowhere. What a picture of, of idolatry, of following your feet to nowhere, to emptiness. And he's looking at these mountains, these huge mountains that have come to separate him and his father. In his leaving the father, he's been separated by this vast distance, these large mountains. And he's looking at these mountains and he says, the mountains, they laugh at me. They're laughing at me, but I know I've got to cross those mountains to find my way home. It's the only way. And he says, oh my pride. I give you up to barter for my freedom. What a line. You see, he sees that the mountains, this great divide between him and his father, is only his pride, is only his self-reliance, is only going his own way. And he realizes that the only way back to being home in the embrace of his father is his pride. And he says, I give you up to trade it in for my freedom. Because he now knows true freedom is not squandering himself, but is being at home with his father. Well, meanwhile, as he's looking at these mountains, the father is looking at the mountains from the other side. And he said, oh, these mountains, they've swallowed my beloved. They've taken him away. Why did he, why did he follow his feet, his feet to nowhere like this? Please come home. 
You've done me no wrong. You see, the father realizes, I just want him home. I'll receive him immediately because of my grace. Of course, the son thinks he'll need a prepared speech to be received by the father. But he says, every evening I look down this road. I wait and I watch for you to come home. And then it shifts to the servant. And the servant's out looking and he says, Master, Master, who's that stumbling down that road? Could it be? Could it be? Master, it's your son coming home to join our lives. And then the rest of the song says, shifts to where we are the prodigal. It says, prodigal me. Father, we are your sons coming home to join your life. We seek no greater fortune than Jesus. I believe. I believe. It's a great song that portrays this reality that repentance is coming back home. It's coming to the embrace of the Father, coming to experience His pardon and His affection and His welcome all over again. You see, God has bound Himself to always receive the repentant sinner. Martin Luther discovered this in his day. The church of his day taught this, that if you did something bad, then the way that you had to pay for that was you had to really beat yourself up. I mean, you had to feel awful. And then you had to go and do something good. You had to say like a long, really painful prayer. And then you had to do something good for somebody. It was penance, right? That was the image of repentance. And Martin Luther discovered something. He discovered that all of life is to be continual repentance for the believer. He discovered that repentance is a way of life. And so whenever he tacked up his 95 theses to the front door of Wittenberg Church, you know what the very first theses was? When our Lord and Master said, repent, same thing that was on that guy's sign. Whenever our Lord and Master said, repent, he willed that all of life would be continual repentance. That is profound. See, what Luther said is, Repentance isn't digression. It isn't going backward. It's how you grow. Repeated repentance is progress. It's how we grow in grace because you're experiencing the wonders of the cross over and over and over again. And to repent in a true kind of repentance like this, you've got to have an enormous confidence in the cross of knowing that the only thing that pays for your sin is not the quality of your repentance, but the quality of Christ's work on the cross. And if your confidence is deeply in that, then you can be a bold repenter. You can be one who is completely open and exposed before God. One who constantly goes before God and says, You see it? I know you see it. I see it too. And it's empty. And I come back to you. Real, true repentance fills you with joy. It brings the kind of brokenness that King David discovered in Psalm 51, where he said, the sacrifices of God, what you want is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite God you will not despise. You see, David, through his brokenness, through his repentance, discovered this is actually what God wants. A repentant heart is what God is most after. So we've seen our idols and we've seen the importance of repentance. But one of the things we've also mentioned as we've gone along is the importance of replacing your idols. 
It's not enough just to deal with the idol. It must be replaced by something far more compelling, something far more satisfying. After all, that's the issue with idolatry. The issue of idolatry is that God's been replaced. And so the goal in beating your idolatry is to come to worship God most deeply in your heart. Jesus once was at a feast. Uh, He was at a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a feast that was celebrated over and over by the Jews, and it commemorated God's provision of water in the desert that's found in the book of Numbers, how He brought water out of the rock for His people. And so this feast commemorated that, and the climax, the last day of the feast, was marked by a water-drawing ceremony. And so Jesus is at this feast, and they're drawing the water, the climax of the feast, and Jesus stands up in front of everybody, brings a hush over the whole place. And He says, if anyone is thirsty, and I know you are, you're thirsty, thirsty people, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. For whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. Christ captures on this image that would have been drawn from Jeremiah and many other places. And He says, I am the spring of living water. Are you thirsty? Is your soul thirsty? Come to Me and drink. I'm the source of fulfillment. The satisfaction that your soul longs for. And whenever you come and drink of Me, not only will you be satisfied, but you yourself become a source of life to others. You become a life giver. You see, in our consumer culture, advertisers will have us to believe that our idols, these things that we're chasing after, will satisfy you. I mean, after all, that's what they're showing us constantly. You know, in our barrage of commercials, they say, look at this. If you just have this, you'll be as happy as them. This will satisfy you. I know that didn't, but this will. You have to have this. And of course, you get there and you get it and you say, that didn't do it. That didn't do it. It just made me thirstier. That's what idols do. They take. They promise, but they take. They promise, but they don't deliver. But Jesus here is saying, whenever you come to me, not only are you satisfied deep within your soul, but you become a giver yourself. My life flows out of you and into the lives of others. So how are we satisfied with Christ? How does that actually happen? Well, it happens this way. Part of how we were made, as I've mentioned, is we were made to be worshipers of God. That is, people who enjoy God forever. That is, we are to be the audience of God's glory in the world. We are to be those who behold His glory and enjoy it forever. Enjoy it to such a degree that it enlivens our life. That's the point of human existence. And so whenever you come to admire Jesus, whenever you come to fix your eyes upon Him, to see His excellencies, His beauty, His power, the extent and the significance of what He has done in His work, the fact that He owns everything and one day He's going to rule over the whole world, whenever you fix your eyes on all the beauties of who He is, and your heart's moved to worship, it satisfies your soul. Why? Because that's what we were made for. We were made to behold the glory of Christ forever. And until you learn how to do that, 
to enjoy Christ, to see Him, to rest in Him, you're going to be plagued by idols. Your life is going to be filled with them. But if you come to behold, as Paul says, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, whenever that begins to happen in you, the attractiveness of your idols wanes. You can let go of them. So would you as a people belonging to Jesus, purchased by Him, in covenant union with Him, would you behold Christ? Would you see the futility of all the things that you're searching after? Would you see they're so empty? They can't deliver. But would you see that Christ does and that He is satisfying? He will satisfy your soul and make you a source of life to others. Behold Him. Let's pray together.